Alrighty, well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our prayer and devotional service here at uh, Lakeview Baptist Church. Uh, just such a pleasure to be here with you all, and I'm sure it's a pleasure for you as well. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the second chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and uh, the title for tonight's message will be Life Lived for His Good Pleasure. You see, what I want to look at tonight is a particular theme that I often give a lot of thought to. And I think it's appropriate that I give a lot of thought to it because I see it everywhere in my Bible. And that is ultimately the, the God-centeredness of the Christian life. The Christian life, there is a bit of divinity in it. That's the wrong way to put it. There is a lot of divinity in, in it. It is not a earthly Thing. It is an eternal thing. It is a heavenly thing, the Christian life is. The Christian life is not lived for silver or gold or for the things of this world, but the Christian life fundamentally is lived for the express intention of laying up treasures in heaven. Now, why is that? Why does a Christian care about storing for themselves treasures in heaven? as opposed to the fleeting pleasures of sin that this world offers. Well, it's very, very simple. Their entire worldview has changed. Their entire worldview has changed. Now everything is not about me, it's not about myself, but it's about my Creator, my Maker, my Savior, the One to whom I owe everything. And so my text for tonight is derived from that great epistle of Paul to the Philippians in uh, Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 12 through 13. And now, Brother Guy and I are just talking, you've got to love Philippians. Uh, the, the book of Philippians is a book that can be summed up probably with the word joy or, or perhaps thanksgiving. The book is just just so full of that, so full of joy, so full of encouragement. It's, a, it's like a river that flows with, a, the, with abundant uh, strengthening and, and rejuvenation for God's weary travelers, for His weary soldiers who had just dipped their cup into her stream. And so we are going to be looking in this letter tonight, and we're going to pray that God would give us joy, that He would give us thanksgiving, and chiefly that He would give us encouragement as we set our minds upon things that are not earthly, but we set our minds upon that which is heavenly and divine and and eternal and and good and ultimately lovely. So here in chapter 2, verse 12, we read this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, a favorite saying of mine, you've probably heard me say this before, is that as we study our Bibles and as we run into the word therefore, the question you need to ask is, what's it there for? And so just briefly, I want to need to restrain myself so we don't spend all of our time about this, but verse 12 comes after 
verse 11, obviously, right? Well, it comes after what is one of the richest, just deepest, most profound and, and important texts in the entire Bible. I reckon that if you were to ask some of the great theologians uh, that God has given to the church, you know, what are the top five most important passages in the Bible? I'm sure this one would be on the list, and that's Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, uh, commonly referred to as the Carmen Christi, refers to, or that saying means the hymn of Christ because it is believed that what that passage was was an early Christian hymn, and I you know, just make the comment, I wish I had a copy of, of their hymnal. But at any rate, in chapter 2, Paul, he, what he is doing is, is he is exhorting, uh, he is admonishing the Philippian believers to, to have unity, to have love, to be of one accord with, with uh, unity of mind, and, and to do all things in, in humility. And so to explain his point as sort of a sermon illustration as he is telling the church that they need to practice serving one another in humility and self-sacrificing these different things, he points them to what is the greatest example or model of humility that the world has ever seen. And that is in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, taking upon himself human flesh for the express purpose of dying on a cross. Why? for sinners, for others. There is humility there. There is self-sacrifice there. And so Paul talks about the person of Jesus Christ, and he says this. This right here, that is how you need to live. Once again, what do we see? There is a God-centeredness to the Christian life. I'm not supposed to model my life after uh, the kings of this earth or, or whatever celebrity or you know, whoever the world tells me is, is nobler, who is worthy. I'm supposed to model my life after the carpenter who gave his life on a tree. Because that carpenter was my creator. And so, when Paul says, therefore, in verse 12, what he's saying is, in light of the fact of what Jesus did, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant, subjecting himself to death, even death on a cross. Because of all that, because of what Christ has done, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that is a verse that perhaps may make some of you a little weary for us, and once again, guy and I are just talking about this, for us evangelical Protestants, the only time the words work and salvation should be in the same sentence as if we are saying that our salvation is not merited by our works, which is an absolutely true statement, statement that, that I would die for. That's true, and that's what the Apostle Paul himself teaches. And so Paul is not contradicting himself or the rest of the Scripture in this place. So what, what is he saying? Well, for starters, we notice that he does not say work for your salvation with fear and trembling, but rather work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The meaning, which will be explained clearly in verse 13, is this. That salvation, when given to us 
by God's grace, causes something in us. It does something to us. It changes our lives radically. And therefore, when we are saved, our salvation is not, you know, you don't put a cork on it. It's not bottled up somewhere inside here and we don't share it or it doesn't express itself in any visible way. Our salvation causes something to come out of us. And the reason it does that is because there has been a change to who we are. And so there is a visible manifestation in a person's life when they are saved that other people are going to see, that other people are going to notice. And so Paul encourages us believers in this, saying to work out your salvation. Remember, what's the context? The context is Philippians. Love one another. Have unity of mind. Do all things in humility. That right there is what happens when we work out our salvation. It causes us to treat people not with anger, not with malice, not with hatred, not with, you know, three weeks ago, such and such person at the church looked at me the wrong way, said something I didn't like, we had a disagreement about this thing or that thing, and so now I'm just going to write them off, I don't want anything to do with them. That's that's not in the Christian mindset. The Christian mindset is, that, that person's my brother. He, he, he is my brother. We may disagree about this, and it may be an important disagreement. Like, like it's the type of thing that's worth arguing and discussing about. But that never, ever, ever means that I stop loving him, that I stop seek. Like, like the whole reason that I would even take the time with my brother to have this discussion where he sees it this way and I see it that way, the whole reason we're having this discussion is because our goal, if we are Christians and grace is working in us, is to be of unity of mind. Not just to argue or just to win points. I want him to see what I'm saying because I believe that it is reflective of, of the truth. And I want my brother to see the truth. That way we can both honor Christ in our lives and, and in the church. Well, that is accomplished by love and self-sacrifice and humility and being of one accord. And so that's, that's the context of what Paul is talking about there. So that's what it looks like when we work out our salvation. We treat the church the way that Christ treated the church. You know, one of the great sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ was in John chapter 7, when he said, whoever believes in me, That's a promise that goes out to all men. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now Jesus told the Samaritan woman that that he had the capacity. He could offer her living water. He he said, ma'am, if you knew who was speaking to, you would have asked me for something to drink, and I would have given you living water. So Jesus has that capacity to to give that to people. And so what he says in this place in chapter 7, he says, whoever thirsts, whoever drinks of the water that I have to offer, it's going to flow out of their hearts. Not meaning that like they lose it and they don't have it anymore, but but what, what, what it's saying is that what I've done for you is going to influence other people. It's going to benefit other people. It's going to be a blessing to other people. Because salvation 
is such a radical change in a person's life, it, it necessarily affects other people. It necessarily benefits them as well. I mean, if, if you're married to someone and you, you go to bed one day and you wake up the next morning, they're a completely different person. That would affect your marriage. Well, here's the reality. We are new creations in Christ. In Christ, I'm not the same man that I was without Christ. I'm not the same woman that I was without Christ. That is how radical of a change the gospel is. And so our faith and our salvation, it produces a change in our lives and our faith that manifests itself in our works and our good deeds. Martin Luther, the German reformer, once said, God does not need your good deeds, but your neighbor does. And so that is what happens when a person gets saved. They work out their salvation. Out of their heart flows rivers of the living water that they have received. Now Paul, he adds this qualifier at the end of verse 12, that they do so in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Now what here is meant by this? Well, the reason that Paul adds that phrase with fear and trembling is so that we can understand living a godly life, living righteously, pursuing holiness, striving to uh, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, these are, that's not something to be taken lightly. That is a serious matter. Loving the brethren, loving my, my brother, loving my sister in Christ, that is serious. That, that matters. It's not, you know, we don't approach the Christian life with a sort of cavalier, laissez-faire attitude. No. What does Paul say? We do it with fear and trembling. We ought to take very careful and serious consideration to how we live our lives as Christians. In all areas, I think that there is, like, there's nothing that's unimportant once you become a Christian. Because once you become a Christian, you're saved by the grace of God, you're a child of, of the Father, Christ Jesus is your elder brother, your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Everything after that matters. What you listen to matters. Who you talk to matters. What you eat for dinner matters. Because your life, it's, it's, it's not about you, but there's a transcendent, upward, vertical element to it. There's divinity in there. There's, there's heaven in there. There's eternity in there. So all, all things in our lives matter when we become a Christian. We're not like those who have no hope and, and so... You know, who cares about different things? That's not how Christians are. We ought to look at all things in respect to God's law and to the person of Jesus Christ. Just recently, there was a, a politician at what was called a quote-unquote prayer breakfast. Uh, you know, supposedly a righteous, virtuous, modest, spiritual Christian event, right? Well, Politician, she gets up there and she begins uh, her statements by joking and laughing about having uh, premarital sex with her fiance. 
at his laughing and joking about fornication, sexual immorality, which Paul says is a sin that keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. You see that attitude right there, laughing and joking about our sin, ha ha ha, what a funny thing it is. That is not Christianity. That, that is the very opposite of how Paul says Christians ought to live their lives. That is with fear and trembling. You see, sin is not a laughing matter. It's not something to be joke of, joking about. You, you know, sin kills people. Sin hurts people. Sin sends people to hell. Sin keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. It separates us from God, our one source of life and love and hope. That's what sin keeps us from. Therefore, Christians who have been saved by the grace through faith in Christ Jesus, though in this life, admittedly, we're not perfect, we, uh, we are not sinless, we still commit sins, we still commit grievous sins, but, but we don't become negligent about it. Because it's a war. You know, we don't just brush it off, laugh about it, whatever. We, we take it extraordinarily and extremely seriously. Because of the fact that you've been saved, because of the fact that what Christ Jesus has done for you and the humility and the service He's shown for you, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now you say, Logan, that sounds severe. That sounds serious. It sounds hard. It sounds harsh. It sounds difficult. And I thought you said this message was going to be, you know, encouraging. Well, all of those things that you were just thinking, if I accurately described you, are all true. This, because it is serious. You know, it is hard. It is difficult. But the seriousness and the difficulty and the hardship is severely outweighed by the encouragement that Paul gives us here. There is encouragement. You know, Jesus, at one point in his life, after preaching a particularly harsh message, Jesus Christ was, uh, one of his disciples actually at one point in his life came to him and was lauding him, saying, uh, uh, Lord, we can tell from your ministry, from your life, that, that you're just not concerned with the opinions of other people. Jesus was not afraid to say difficult things. And so after a particularly tough, just, just hard discourse where he's saying, you know, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Hard, tough words, difficult to deal with. Someone comes up to him and they say, Sir, who, who then can be saved? If, if what you're saying is true, and if that is how difficult it is to be saved, who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? Do you know what his response was? He said, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that is impossible to do without grace. You see, to live the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live, with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So therefore, we need God in our lives, we need the Holy Spirit to equip us and to enable us to, to do the things that we've been called to do. That's why I emphasize the fact that Paul says, work out your own salvation. Meaning, before you even start doing anything, the salvation has already taken place. The grace 
has already come into your life. The Holy Spirit has already made His abode within you. So therefore, in light of that, let's look at now what he says in verse 13, which will hopefully be as encouraging to you as it is to me. In verse 13, Paul continues, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do you recognize now I said at the outset that the Christian life, its very core, at its very nature, is God-centered. Let's break this verse apart into four pieces. The first piece, for it is God who works in you. The second, both to will. The third, and to work for, for His good pleasure. Those are the four pieces. Those are the four stages of the Christian life in its essence. It starts with God. It is carried out by God. And in the end, it was all for God. God works in you to will and to work. And the end result, according to verse 13, is for His own good pleasure. Do you see that there is no room in there for pride? that there is no room in there for boasting, that there is no room in there for self-righteousness. It is God, 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 all the way through. So for starters, Paul says, for it is God who works in you. Now think about some of the things that we were just talking about in the last verse. We're not working for our salvation, but rather we are working out our own salvation. You see, Jesus has the living water, And he cries out, whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. Then whoever drinks, Jesus says, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. So as we contemplate on, as we live out the Christian life, we recognize that we do not do this in our own power. We do not do this in our own strength. But it is God who works in us. Now what exactly does that mean? What exactly is it that God is, is, is doing in my life? Well, the next thing he says is both to will and to work. Let's start with the first one, the will. The, uh, the will here refers to our desires, our, our wants, our, our inclinations, you know, as, as humans. As human beings, you know, we always act according to our strongest inclination, our strongest desire. There's a a real sense in which it is impossible to do something that you don't want to do. You say, Logan, every day I go to work, I I do something I don't want to do. Every day I do this thing or that thing, I'm doing something I don't want to do. I actually disagree. Because, you see, you may say that you don't want to go to work, but why are you going there? Because your desire, your inclination, your will, to use the terminology of this verse, Your will to have that paycheck is stronger than your will to stay home. So in reality, as human beings, we always act according to our strongest will, our strongest desire, our strongest inclination. Now, the biblical revelation and teaching is that man, being fallen in Adam, does not desire righteousness, does not desire the things of God. We read in Scripture, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even 
one. Well, if this is the case, if this is an accurate description of human nature, which being that those are the very words of God himself, I, I trust him to make those judgments. Well, then from whence does the desire to follow after God come from? Paul tells us here in verse 13 that it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So our will, our inclination, our desire to be obedient to the commandments of God and to follow after Him and to believe in Jesus Christ, even this is the very gift of God. Paul says, if you just turn a couple pages back, chapter 1, verse 29, that it has been granted to us to believe. What does that mean? It means at the very outset, at the very beginning of, in, of our Christian lives, God is, is already working in us. For our will to follow Him, our will to obey Him and to love Him, it does not come from the flesh, but it comes from Him. Now, the next thing that Paul focuses on is our work, the things that we do. God works in us to work. Work here, what does that refer to? It refers to what we were talking about in verse 12, our good Deeds, our obedience to God's law, to keeping His commandments. Ultimately, uh, our sanctification, the process in which God makes us holy. As He takes us and He sharpens us and He conforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, here is what is so profound about this text here. That Paul attributes our working out our salvation to God's working in us. So here's where we have some tension. You see, just a moment ago, Paul said to work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling. And so you asked the Apostle Paul, what is it? Am I the one doing this? Am I the one working this thing out? Or is it God working it out? Paul would say yes that question. For we are to take very, very seriously the work that we do in our lives. That is God's intention for us. That is how God wants us to look at our lives. We are to give very, very great consideration for how we live and how we act. But what we must avoid at all costs is an overconfidence and an overdependence upon our own strength. When we trust too much in ourselves and not enough upon God, that is when we stumble. That is when we fail. That is when we get hurt. Now, I know that as Christians, and I am no different than any of you in this respect, get discouraged, depressed, anxious, you know. And it's like there are moments in our lives when even a a godly person, a saved person, can feel so just helpless. And we're not making the progress that we need to make. We're not doing the things that we need to do. You know, we're still dealing with this sin and that sin and our anger and and our lust and our anxiety and, and depression and these different things and we just can't seem to overcome them. The encouragement that I want you to have, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, is this. Do not try to fight those battles in your own strength and power. You will fail, and I can guarantee that. Do you realize that overcoming the sin in your life 
That, that is a supernatural thing. That that is a supernatural work because it is. The naturalists, the evolutionists, the materialists in this world will tell you that all your sin is is just the bouncing around of a bunch of chemicals in your brain that make you do certain things. But does not our own life experience disprove the insane claim of the secularists at this point? You see, when you sin in any capacity, and the person with grace in their heart knows this, I'm just telling you something you know, but to articulate it for you, when you sin in any capacity, it's more than just the random result of your genetics and chemicals and hormones bouncing around in, in your body. You know that. There is a spiritual element to it all. Therefore, for you to overcome any sin in your life, and I don't care what it is, it is a supernatural work. And it's like you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, so why are you going to bring physical weapons to a spiritual war? Always remember, trust, and rely upon the grace of God to help you through these things. Pray for the power of the Holy Spirit who is more powerful than the spirits of this world, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Now lastly, let's ask the question, why does God do these things? Why does He do all these things in us? Why does He show us mercy? Why does He show us love? Why does He strengthen us? Why does He make us holy? Why does He do these things? I mean, God is so good. And He loves us and blesses us so abundantly, but, but why? Well, Paul's answer might leave you speechless if you understand it. Paul says that he does all of these things for his own good pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, the only reason that God does these wonderful things, marvelous things, the reason that he loves us so much and he blesses us so much is for this simple and profound reason. Because he wants to. Does that not just take your breath away? You, you know that it's not because you deserve it, right? I, I hope you know that. If you've listened to enough of my preaching, you know that. You may be tired of me saying it, but I'm going to keep saying it. It's because He wanted to love you. It's because He wanted to be merciful to you. It's because He wanted to forgive you. Because He takes pleasure and delight in that. Why does He give us the will to follow Him? Why does He work in us to work? For His good pleasure. The reason that God has saved you, the reason He's given you a new nature, the reason that He's adopted you as a child, causing you to desire Him and empowering you to live obedient to Him, all of this was because He specially took delight in doing so. He did all of it for His own good pleasure. And with that being said, may we all rejoice in the grace of our great and powerful God in the God-centeredness of the lives that we live hereafter. My brother Bill is going to come and close us in prayer. Thank you very much.